Find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. Today's episode is quite special to me. We have the supervisor of my bachelor's thesis as our guest on this podcast. I have done my bachelor's thesis on a special aspect of communication between mother and infant chimpanzees. And well, today's guest is um, Bas van Bockholt. Uh, he is doing his PhD dissertation on the phenomenon of turn-taking in wild chimpanzees, um, which, well, I think most people won't have heard of the term turn-taking, so we're going to talk about what that is in a bit. Um, welcome, Bas, and I'm really glad you're here today. Thank you for inviting me over. And at the beginning of each episode, we like to play a little welcome game, and we like you to finish those sentences for us. Um, and the first sentence would be, as a kid, I always wanted to be. A monkeyologist is the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. So you, you stuck with it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And the second sentence is, if I was an emoji, I would be. I think it feels too, too easy to say the, the monkey emoji. Um, <laughs> Which one? Maybe... I think I think just like the, 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 the standard face of the monkey with the smile. Okay. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing to do on a day off is? Sports, I think, like running, um, but also generally being outside. That's cool. Um, right now I'm most fascinated by? That's a good question. Um, I think right now I'm most fascinated by... I honestly, <laughs> I'm shooting a blank here. Um, I think some some recent developments. I, I went to a conference um, with my field about primatology, and I had some talks that I'm still processing in my head that have an influence on my PhD. But to explain that would take quite a long time to 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 say why I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's your research basically. Yeah. Yeah. Your moment, research, yes. Yeah. Uh, I know it's time to call it a day when. When I'm literally falling asleep behind my desk, <laughs> which does happen sometimes. Okay. I feel like that's a struggle many PhDs have. Yeah, yeah. When even the coffee can't save you. Yeah, and then you know it's over. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was it for the welcome game. And uh, now we want to quickly talk about your scientific background. If I'm correct, you did not do your master's or bachelor's here in Osnabrück. So no, where, where yeah. did you study and how did you end up here, maybe? Um, yeah, so I think we can go back to that first sentence. Like, I, I was one of those lucky people who always knew what they wanted to be. When I was like a little kid, I said I wanted to be a monkeyologist. I wanted to study uh, primates in general. Um, so I did my bachelor's in biology in uh, Groningen. Uh, I'm Maybe it's uh, good to say I'm from the Netherlands. I'm not originally German. Um, so I, I went to Groningen to do my uh, bi uh, biology bachelor. And then when I finished my bachelor's, I, I, I thought by myself, like I've always said my whole life, I want to be a monkeyologist, which is a non-existing term. Um, so, but I've never done it. So I never nearly knew if I really wanted to do it. Uh, so I took a gap year and I went to Malaysia for six months to volunteer at a, a primate research project, the Makaka Nimestrina project. Um, and I loved it. I loved being in the jungle, following uh, some pigtailed macaques around. Um, so when I came back from my gap year, I really knew I wanted to do that. So then I started looking for a master that went in that, that direction. And then I went to Utrecht, also in the Netherlands to do a master in behavioral ecology. 
did a lot of research there. I did a project on long-tailed macaques, looking at uh, reconciliation and reciprocity. And I also went uh, again for eight months to South Africa to uh, study alarm calls in vervet monkeys. Uh, so that already got a little bit into communication there. Um, and at the end of my master's, I knew I wanted to yeah, keep continuing in my quest to become the world's first monkeyologist. So I started looking for a PhD. And I think it's the second or third position that I saw and that I, uh, I responded to was with uh, Simona Pika's lab here in Osnabrück. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to get this position uh, when I applied for it. So that's basically how I came here about three and a half years ago, in March 2020, when I started my PhD. Nice. It nearly sounds like a perfect story. When you look at it from the outside, it sounds like really straightforward. Yeah, yeah, but like I said, I think I'm uh, I'm really lucky with knowing what I wanted. So like always I've been having this goal in my mind and being able to focus on, on, on how to achieve that goal and how to actually get there. And I remember when I needed to choose my study before my bachelor's, I was like, oh, biology sounds cool, but also I was a little bit into medicine. Mm -hmm. And then my older sister said to me, well, if you really want to be a monkeyologist, you need to do biology. And then like, I think that from that moment, I was like, okay, yes, yeah. for now, I want to be a monkeyologist. So I really should just focus on choosing everything that leads towards that goal. Yeah. yeah. You just um, mentioned uh, your PhD position. So yeah. can you maybe shortly explain or say what you're currently doing and what your topic of your PhD is? Yes, yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, you mentioned already in the introduction, I'm looking at turn taking, um, but I think that was the, like the original conception of the PhD, but the PhD is not static, it, it develops over time. Um, so I think I'm now a little bit more general looking at the uh, development of communication in chimpanzees. Um, including with, with, with a big focus on turn-taking, and I'm sure we're going to get to that uh, uh, eventually. Um, but in my PhD, I really look at uh, chimpanzee infants between zero and five years old um, in the wild. So I've been to uh, Uganda twice in my PhD to collect data on, on chimpanzee infants. And what I've been basically doing is I'm filming a lot of interactions between uh, the infant and other uh, individuals of the community which is 60-70% is their mother. So they will mm -hmm. interact with their mother a lot. And I think because of the time pressure, I won't be able to analyze everything I have. Um, so I will focus just on mother-infant interactions and really try to see how from like very young, from like yeah, zero, six months, um, up to five years, how their communication develops, how they start using gestures, vocalizations, but also how the interactional structure in, of those interactions uh, in which turn-taking comes back, um, changes over development and to see, always have a comparative outlook to really see, okay, is this comparable of what we know in human infants? Um, does this development seems the same or are there differences um, with the idea of like, if it's very similar, then maybe those building blocks were already present in our uh, last common ancestor uh, so that these specific building blocks I'm looking at might be evolutionary before the uh, evolution of human language. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, vocalizations and gestures. So mm -hmm. I think most people don't really have an idea of how chimpanzees communicate, I guess, because yeah. when I think of uh, movies, I would like normally you would see maybe chimpanzee or I think there was one show, uh, 
uh, my friend Chimpanzee Charlie or something like that. I don't know. It's it's quite old, actually. <laughs> like, to me, it appears quite old, where mm-hmm. a chimpanzee uh, called Charlie lived in a human family. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's not normal for chimpanzees. They, they yeah. don't live in human families, understand human language. They have their own ways of communicating. So how do they do that? Um, yeah, so it's actually, um, we say we don't really know, but once you get to know a chimpanzee, it's not that different from humans. Of course, it's not human language, I think. There's a lot of things where humans and primates, there is more of a gradient evolutionary, but like we really specifically look at human language, there's nothing as complex and as uh, rich and big uh, in the animal kingdom. Um, but there's different facets of human language that we do find uh, across the animal kingdom. But I think when chimpanzees communicate, um, it's less like like human language is always based on speech. That's the main thing, except if you're talking about sign language. Um, but also human language is inherently multimodal, meaning it's, we use speech, but we also use uh, glances. We use our gaze. We use we make constantly we make gestures as well. Even our body orientation all helps in support the speech, but also guides uh, can can guide whole interactions if you're talking about. Uh, for example, dancing or giving a hug or a handshake. That's there's no speech involved there, but still, all these other parts come in place. And I think these other parts are more important in chimp uh, language or chimp communication as well. It's a lot more done through body orientation, uh, gestures, uh, which are fairly similar to humans as well. If a chimp wants some food from another chimp, he will stretch out his hand, uh, palm up as a begging gesture. We, mm. we all recognize those as begging gestures and they all these seem to have the same meaning in chimps as well. So there's a lot of things that are very natural to us and that we recognize that seem to be almost identical in chimps as well. Uh, yeah, and they do use vocalization as well, but not on the same level as we, but it's mainly done through yeah, more bodily actions. Have you any or have you focused on on the differentiation between uh, language and communication because you use like both terms very carefully? Is there like maybe one definition that you have for your thesis? Yeah, um, so the thing is with like human language, um, because I have zero background in in linguistics, so I really feel like a fish out of the water when I'm talking about language. Uh, so I always try to be careful uh, to not step on any toes saying, oh, uh, chimps have language. Uh, so like I used more communication as the more general term as like talking about has sending signals, uh, um, sending and receiving signals, uh, transferring information from one individual to the other. Uh, I generally use yeah communication as a thing, uh, and and then so all the the evolution of human language, but because I don't know enough about language itself. Um, and it has been quite a touchy subject in history as well in this in, in our field. Um, I think no scientist would say that other animals have language because language is such a loaded term and such, such many different facets to it. And I feel like some theories also or some like like disagreements in our field are because there is no specific all-encompassing definition of what language is. So maybe people are talking next to each other and because they are using different definitions, they disagree even though they might agree on a basic level. Um, so yeah, like the word language is, is, is very loaded and I try not to use it. Uh, so really just talk about communication in general. <laughs> When I did the research for my thesis, I remember that 
especially about chimpanzee, but also great ape communication. I read quite a lot about the first approaches of researching on the communication ways uh, great apes have. For example, mm -hmm. it was, um, well, people tried to teach them spoken language, which did not work out. Then they tried to teach um, great apes sign language, which worked out in a way. When we think about the process of great ape communication research, um, how would you say has it developed over time and where would you say are we right now? Um, yeah, no, it has quite a long development path. Um, and I think if you talk about communication studies, uh, generally when you talk about anything related to, to comparative and to, to evolution, you have to start with Charles Darwin. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, On the Expressions in Animal and, or Man and Animal, I think. Don't quote me <laughs> on that, something like that. Uh, in which he already showed that there is like these facial expressions, these basic facial expressions like disgust or anger or uh, smiling when you're happy that are we see across cultures in, in humans, but we also see similar expressions in animals as well. And he was very cautious, not saying, oh, these are the same, but we just see the similarities. Um, so there's always been like this idea of there's some kind of continuity uh, going on. Um, but then about the same year as he published that book, there was the the French Society of Linguistics mm -hmm. who actually put a ban on studying the origin of human language because they said, this is a question we can't answer, so we're not going to bother and nobody is allowed to publish about it. Uh, and that set the field back quite a lot. Uh, and I think about like a decade later is when we, we really started looking in it again. And indeed, the first approach was teaching primates human language. Um, so there is this very famous example of Vicky, who was a chimpanzee who lived with uh, his researchers for three years, having a lot of speech therapy, a lot of operant conditioning. Uh, and after three years of really intensive training, he was about able to produce four words, uh, papa, mama, cup and up. And I think even with cup, they had to actually put his mouth in a certain way mm -hmm. uh, for him to produce that. So. That, that already quickly was like, okay, primates are not able to produce uh, human language. Uh, but then they went into, indeed, into gesture. Uh, and then there was a little bit more success. Uh, there's Coco, um, there is this chimpanzee um, called Nim Chimsky, uh, after Noam Chomsky. Mm -hmm. um, and they were teaching sign language, and I think they got to 100 or even to 1,000 words, and even showing a little bit of uh, rudimentary grammar in that. Um, but still, the problem with these approaches, even if you are able to have a chimp or a cocoa as a gorilla um, produce human sign language, it doesn't teach you anything about the evolution of our language uh, at all. Um, so then they tended to uh, focus uh, more on, okay, but what does animal communication look, uh, look like? How does that work? And are there certain building blocks that we see in our language? and in animal communication uh, that might have this longer evolutionary uh, history. Um, and because human language is mostly associated with speech, they first started to focus on vocalizations. Um, and this is interesting that when you compare great apes, so uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans, to uh, monkeys who are more distantly related to us, we see more rich vocalization structures in, uh, in certain monkey species than in uh, great apes. Um, and one very 
important paper. One, one very uh, seminal work was done by uh, Robert Seyfart and Dorothy Cheney on uh, the alarm call system of forever monkeys, which <laughs> I also have a little bit of background with. Um, and these forever monkeys, they have three different uh, alarm calls uh, that they use for different predators. So they have an eagle alarm call for any aerial predators, they have a snake alarm call for snakes, and a leopard alarm call for leopards, but also for jackals, for like large yeah. terrestrial predators. And what they showed in this uh, experiment is that these calls really seem to have also the meaning of, hey, there is this predator coming. And they showed up during a playback experiment, so they... Uh, recorded these these alarm calls and then they would play them back when there was no predator present. Uh, they would play, for example, a leopard alarm call. And what they what they saw is that when uh, the monkeys heard the leopard alarm call, they would react as if there were leopards. So they would climb into the tree, get away from the ground. Whereas if they heard an eagle alarm call, they would get down from the trees on the ground. And mm -hmm. that's their normal anti-predator response to those alarm calls. So that's the first work or like the most famous work where they showed like okay some of these calls seems to have seem to be like words like this really seems to have meaning and they're able to refer to something that's outside there of it's not just like oh i'm calling because i'm angry i have this lot of it's just an automatic response uh but i'm really referring to something that's that's uh, uh not about my inner emotions or my inner workings so that was very promising uh, but then the problem is is that primates don't show any uh, or very uh, little vocal learning. So like we humans were able to learn new words, we were able to produce new sounds that we never have heard before uh, quite flexibly. Um, and if you get a vervet monkey from Ethiopia and compare with a vervet monkey from South Africa, their alarm calls are going to be exactly the same. Um, or almost, mm -hmm. almost very similar. Um, so it seems almost that their vocalizations are very innate. They are uh, genetically hardwired. They're not socially learned, uh, even though their usage seems to have some learning processes. So a baby vervet monkey would make an eagle alarm call also to a goose flying over or to a falling leaf. It would still be related to uh, the air, but as it grows up, it will learn that, okay, only when that specific type of hog or a specific type of raptor comes over, that's when I need to make an illegal alarm call. But they're not able to produce new sounds, like we saw with the chimps as well. Uh, it's very, very limited, and the vocal repertoire is, is quite limited as well. Um, I think it's like maybe in the order, the biggest vocal repertoire in primates is maybe in the order of 20 to 30 uh, mm -hmm. Calls and it's already very gradient uh, to us. Whereas we humans, we, because we can recombine and we can uh, work it all together, we have a limitless repertoire. Um, but of course, next to vocalizations, uh, uh, they all started focusing on gestures. And then here we see that great apes seems to produce way more gestures and also use them way more flexibly compared to uh, monkeys. Uh, whereas the same gesture can be used in different contexts, but also in the same context, they would use different gestures getting the same goal. So they seem to be able to flexibly choose which gesture produce when to achieve a certain goal. Um, and, and I think that's quite fairly reason. I think we're now talking about like 10 years ago when really they started really focusing on the gestural repertoire, really saying, okay, maybe this is more interesting. And there is this was shortly a debate about, okay, did human language evolve from vocalizations or did it evolve from gestures? And that debate hasn't been solved. And I personally think it might not be that interesting to solve. Um, 
And, and yeah, the, the, the most recent look at it is like, well, language is not just vocalization and gestures. It's inherently multimodal. We're always using these different channels together. We're always combining them together. Even uh, even though we use speech a lot, we're always making, uh, like it's so important for us to look at the other, to make gestures, to have this body orientation. So the question of in which modality uh, the language flow is not really that um that promising, there's not might not be an answer, might just be all at the same time. Uh, and I think that, yeah, I think that's that's the most recent development. And then what I'm looking at, I mean, this is still focused on like a really, uh, what type of signals are there? What do they mean? Um, and then, then what I focus on is the uh, hypothesis of Levinson called the interaction hi uh, engine hypothesis. Uh, which states that, okay, independent of like what's the structure of human language, what, what does human language exist of, we humans are able to interact with each other. We have these social interactions, and these interactions themselves, they have a certain structure, um, they have a certain cognitive mechanism behind it. And he says that we humans were already able to socially interact with each other before human language was there. And because we were able to socially interact with each other, language could evolve in the first place. Uh, and for us to be able to socially interact with each other, we need this certain set of skills. Uh, and then he calls this set of skills the interaction engine. And that sounds very vague, but to give an example, um, he says, uh, for example, pro-social motivation is, is part of the interaction engine. Like when we try to communicate, we try to be inherently cooperative. We're not trying to outsmart each other, uh, we really try to get our message across. And, and the other one knows that and is also knowing that the other one is cooperative, they knows what, okay, what he says is probably true or like there is a reason behind it why he says that. Uh, so that's, that's one example. Another example is this face-to-face, multimodal uh, part of the interaction that's already inherently is uh, to us. And what we see is that across human languages, across sign language as well, these, this basic structure of how people are interacting with each other uh, on like the conversational level, that seems to be uh, universal and that might have like longer evolutionary backgrounds. And those building blocks are the one that I look at in my PhD, like turn-taking is one as well. It's just like, well, in human conversations, we tend to take turns, not like with this podcast, where it's one person talking for a long yeah. time and the other one uh, just listening, but we try tend to take these turns alternating. Uh, and this seems very logical. It seems like, okay, why is that a big deal? But if you really start to think about it and really start to look at it, it's quite special, actually. It's the fact that we're able to communicate with each other, having barely any overlap, uh, but also having these small gaps between uh, between turns. Uh, where uh, like the average gap in one experiment was about 200 milliseconds, which is very short, um, especially if you realize that for our brain to start producing a word, it takes about 600 milliseconds. So for some reason, we're able to predict when somebody's finished talking and we're already starting to produce our response before he finished talking to get this tight gap. Um, and that's also one of the reasons that if you're having a Zoom uh, conversation, why that is so hard to communicate because there's a slight little lag on the on the line because hey, it's it's online and we we our brain just can't process that like because we were so tightly coordinating with each other on a normal day-to-day -day basis if there's a little bit lag in the system suddenly we're struggling and having just a basic conversation mm -hmm. uh, online so like that's one of the reasons why like zooming is is, is so hard 
I think talking on the phone is even harder because on Zoom, at least you see the other person's face. Yeah. When just talking on the phone, you just hear the voice and just have the uh, voice input as information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that like that's that's the most recent state of the field where I'm involved. Uh, communication, evolution of language is so big, I don't look at all the different parts. Uh, yesterday I saw a seminar that looked at the relation between uh, the rhythm, uh, mm -hmm. like people able to produce music or recognizing rhythm and vocal learning, and they were looking at seals. It was very interesting that seals have this kind of rhythm and they're able to also vocal learn, uh, learning, uh, which is very rare in mammals and birds, it's very common, but in mammals it's just bats and seals and maybe some whales as well. Uh, let's show vocal learning. Uh, so that's another part of the field that's very recent, but like, yeah, the field like where, where I'm involved in is I think this idea of like, instead of just looking, okay, what's the structure of the communication itself? We're more looking at okay, but how do they use communication? How mm -hmm. do they really converse with each other? And what's the structure of their, their conversations, their interactions with each other? Mm, you just mentioned that at the, quite at the beginning um, that humans have a quite large range of um, sounds they can use for words, mm -hmm. but um, especially great apes mainly use gestures. Can, like, is it known how many gestures are commonly used in one species? Or is it depending on where they live, where they, um, how they interact with others? Um, also, when they are able to learn gestures from human beings, can they expand their own gesture repertoire or is it always fixed? Um, yeah, to answer that last part uh, first, yes, at least chimpanzees uh, uh, and I think most great apes are able to learn gestures. For example, a very common gesture that we don't see in the wild is pointing, uh, which is very common for humans, but the only times that we see spontaneously uh, chimpanzees uh, or leaf great apes use pointing gestures was in this captive uh, situation and they were probably learned it from uh, the caretakers uh, but even apart from that like even we've we've seen a captive experience where they are able to learn new kinds of gestures um, and the thing is with with this gestural repertoire how big is it how many it really depends on how do you classify what a gesture is in the first place but also when is something the same just different variation of the same gesture or when are these different gestures because um, that in the end is arbitrary. Like when you say, if I stretch my arm out with my palm up, is that a different gesture? If I stretch my arm out with my palm down, uh, if I also make a little movement with it, like there's like a million ways in which you can really classify gestures, uh, classify movements as different gestures. So that you can make the repertoire as big as you think yourself. Um, so one way to not then look at it, okay, but if there's this different variation, but they always get the same response or they generally get the same response, then they belong to the same gesture, mm -hmm. we say. So like we're more looking at what is the, the, the function of a movement, um, like what is the, yeah, what's the behavioral response it gets generally, uh, then, then, then the actual shape of the, uh, of the thing, because that is arbitrary where you cut off and make different, uh, different forms. Mm -hmm. And what we see, uh, and this, th yeah, this is quite recent. So, like, these are not definitely not not fine, like uh, known answers uh, that we're one hundred percent sure of. But we see there's a big overlap in the gestures between different chimpanzee communities, but also between different species. 
So there's this really interesting research where they uh, they, they had this 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 gestural repertoire in chimpanzees, and then they used the same methods, but looked at bonobos, and they saw like 90% of the gestures. I think somewhere between 80 and 90% of the gestures they 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 both used, and only a few gestures that were only seen in bonobos or only seen in um, chimpanzees. Um, and they included, okay, what's the uh, meaning of gesture? Like, what's the behavioral response? And even then they saw, like, oh, almost every time when a gesture is used in both communities, it has the same meaning in the same context. So this this almost seems like, oh, maybe there is some inherent gesture repertoire that is older as well, um, that we humans have, that we bonobos have, that chimps have. They are currently expanding, uh, extending it to orangutans and gorillas as well. I think it is already published and like there seems to be even like still it's less, not 80, 90 percent, I think more like 60, 70 percent. But that's still quite a lot of things. There's like a million ways you can move your bodies. But for some reason, we have got this set of movements that have a certain meaning that we see in, in, in almost every great ape species um, there. And is that because they were the most logical in the situation and just makes sense? Or is that because there is genetically fixed mm -hmm. or because they learned that that was something we don't know yet. But it is interesting to see that there is this big overlap in the different gestures that they use, uh, including also the meaning of those gestures. Yeah. You just at the beginning, you mentioned um, as a backing gesture pulling of when you beg for food that mm -hmm. you reach out your hand. Uh, humans would also do that in a way in yeah. certain situations. Are there other gestures that are known or similar in humans compared to great apes? Or is it only this begging that comes to mind? Um, I think begging is, is, is definitely the most clear to see because uh, it's, like, it's quite an obvious gesture and it will usually extend it. But it, there's a lot of things you can see uh, when I'm following the infants through the forest. Um, if they are certainly scared for something, they run to their mother and hug their mother, which mm -hmm. is something that seems also very human as well. Or if they are climbing up a tree and the mother thinks, okay, they're getting too far away, the mother would just stretch their arm and grab the infant and not like just pull them in and the infant has no choice in it, would just almost just like go around the infant like, hey, you are too far and then mm -hmm. the infant would let go and then they would come back. Um, so there are these small gestures, these, 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 yeah, these small gestures that definitely seem very human as well. Um, there's also, um, which is something that we humans don't do, but if if we would do it, then we would probably do it in the same way. Like this, this, this grooming uh, behavior that they show a lot. Uh, and, and one very common gesture is that uh, you've got one chimp approaching the other chimp and it would like lift its arm and start scratching at a very spot, very clearly, loudly scratching. Uh, and he's signaling there like, hey, I would like you to groom me there, which which often happens as well, uh, where I think, well, yeah, um, may, maybe in humans we have something similar. If, if you have a, a bump on your back or something or you need someone to look at some place where you can't reach it, then you would also go to that person, like turn your back towards mm -hmm. the person and like, like point at it like, hey, can you have a look here or can you uh, apply a sunscreen there because I can't reach it. Yeah. So there's definitely, I think most gestures are very similar. There's no gesture where I think of like, oh, this is a very weird gesture that that doesn't make sense to me, but makes sense to James. I mean, there's just situations that James have that we humans don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, true. It's <laughs> just thinking if we would start sitting all in a circle and groom each other as human beings, I think most people would consider that a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think we can now 
turn our attention to uh, turn taking more uh, specifically. Um, so why is turn taking so fundamental? And maybe, I mean, you shortly explained it earlier, but maybe can you um, give an example of what turn taking looks like in human and uh, in humans and why it's also found in chimpanzees or why it's essential to communication? Yeah, so, so I think turn-taking, easy to explain, is any, any kind of conversation you have uh, is somebody taking turns and the other thing. But even, it's, it's more than that. It's just it's not just like, okay, we're taking turns talking to each other, but even when somebody is talking and you, you, you nod your head at a certain time or you say, mm-hmm, at a certain times, those are specific times. Those are not like randomly in a thing. Those are what they call, I think, like potential turn-changing uh, things. These are, are, are moments where you could take the turn, but you don't. But you give this confirmation, hey, I'm still there. Uh, and every, every time when, when I'm talking about this and somebody's nodding and I'm saying, oh, but we have nuts, you see them, oh, then you see them being aware of that. So it's very fundamental and we're not aware of it. Um, but it's a very important structure because the, the, the big downside of, of having speech is when you start overlapping, you can't hear that well what the other is saying. So overlap is, is detrimental for, for having efficient communication. So it's important to not overlap, but also not have long breaks in it. So the most efficient, efficient way is, in, in fact, that turn-taking structure. Um, and we... We, we can break this turn thing. So it's not just about like one turn, the other turn. It's also the way we organize it. Uh, we use uh, the way we, we end our sentences uh, is in certain ways. Also, we, we make a rise or, or, or a downfall in our pitch that we know this is an end of a sentence. We uh, tend to look at the other uh, person when we end a sentence or look away when we want to keep on talking. Uh, so there's this more than just what we hear, there's a lot of, of body language going on as well. Uh, and something we call uh, uh, framework establishment, which is actually something that uh, Elisa looked at uh, in her bachelor thesis, uh, is when we start a conversation or when we have a conversation with multiple persons, we, we tend to, we need to somehow be able to communicate who is taking the next turn. If it's just two, then it's the other person. And even then there can be a conflict where one wants to keep on talking and the other wants to go in, we all have know that person where you want to you can't get a word in between because they keep on talking um but especially if it's multi-party interaction you need this this framework statement to say okay who is taking the next turn and uh, we use gaze for that a lot um and that's something that we see in uh in chimpanzees as well uh that's one of the most clearest thing but that's mainly mainly at the start of a an interaction like okay how do you start how do i make sure i'm in now in a conversation with you how do I start an interaction with you? Um, and then we see that Jimmy's also use gaze and body direction uh, a lot to initiate an interaction. Uh, and then with humans, I'm talking more about conversations because that's what we do a lot and that's most clear. But even when I want to give you a handshake or I want to give you a hug, I still need to somehow make clear, hey, I want to now interact with you. Um, and you need still need to establish this framework of uh, yeah of 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 getting there. Uh, so that's something we see as well. Um, and another element of turn taking is related to something called AJC pairs, uh, which which helps us because, like I said, we have this very tight correlation between uh, me ending a sentence and you already giving a response. But in theory, there's a million responses you can give. So how do you know what to actually respond? Uh, so we've got these JC pairs where there is, if I say something, there's a 
there's not there in theory you can have a million responses but only a few make sense uh, and to, to, to clarify that if i ask a question it makes sense to give an answer if i wave at you it makes sense to wave back there's this certain tight correlate uh, links uh, where there's a first pair part and a second pair part that are adjacent next to each other um, hello hello is also an adjacent pair um, and we see that in chimps as well that there are certain gestures or vocalizations and they have a certain response tied to that uh, and it's not one-on-one -on -one. if i do this gesture you always respond with a gesture but it's a very like it's more than chance if i see this gesture then i see this response uh, more often than you would expect based on how we see this response in general in, the, uh, in their communication. So these are all different parts of turn-taking that we, we, we see in humans and that we also see in, um, in chimps. Um, and then more related to my PhD, in humans, these, these turn-taking structures, they already uh, appear very early in development, even before human infants start using their first words in their babbling. They already start using their gaze. They already show overlap avoidance. Um, so even before we start speaking, we already have this kind of turn-taking uh, in, our, in our system. And that's something I want to see if chimps have a well. Do they... When they're really young, just randomly produce gestures and vocalizations, or they, they also try to avoid overlap, try to really react to their mother, really gaze and use body direction towards their mother as well. When do we start seeing those JC pairs, those links? Do they already know from very early on if my mother produced this gesture, I have this response? Or do we see that in the beginning they don't really react, or they react wrongly, or they, they just don't have this adjacency pair structure yet, but after two or three years old, we see that there is certain gestures that have a very specific response. That makes sense. I was first thinking of turn-taking, maybe like that it's very functional for overt speech, because as you said, if two people are talking at the same time, you can't understand anything. Um, but then I thought a little bit about it more, and then I realized that maybe it's not just overt speech, but also, I mean, for example, when we play games or something, then we also use like turns to uh, organize the whole thing. So it's not yeah. not just tied to overt speech, but it's something that we do in general if we're doing something collaboratively or... Yeah, 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 exactly. When you start to think about turn-taking, you see it everywhere. And like, yeah, it's, it can be very structured, like in, in certain games where, yeah, like in chess, you really take a turn, uh, you, you can't place uh, the things at the same time or traffic lights. Uh, there's, there's a lot of turn-taking in general that's very structured, like a very influence from outside because of certain rules. Um, but in, in our conversation, nobody is forcing you to not talk over me. Uh, there's, there's no external rules saying that we have to do it this way. Uh, it just tends to be the most efficient and we, we tend to be very good at it. Um, yeah, but like, no, there's a lot of like turn-taking structure in, in our world in general, yeah. I mean, it sounds a bit like it's also basic social rule in a way. So when we don't, when we wouldn't take turns, we would really badly interact with other people. So in order to act socially or in order to work functionally in a society, we need to take turns to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it the same in apes? So like, could they also communicate when they wouldn't focus on how the other is responding mm -hmm. or not responding so um yeah that's very interesting because um like 
the downside of having work like speeches with overlap is really detrimental. We don't really have that with gestures. I can produce a gesture and you can overlap with my gesture production. I can still see what you're doing, you can see what we're doing, and we won't have that breakdown as much. So, so in that case, we, if you just look at gestures, then turn-taking doesn't have to be. Uh, there, there's no, no well, there's some reason for it, but like there, there is less, less um, costs involved if there's no turn-taking. Um, but so what, 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 I um, kind of like, lost my train of thought there. Um, I was asking how far, like when, what's the social trade-off uh, apes get from turn-taking? Mm -hmm. Is there anything known about it or is it just hypotheses right now? Um, well, what we do see um, is that, uh, like, and this is, this is quite very preliminary, so, so definitely not definitive yet. Uh, but what we do see is that we tend to see that uh, individuals that are more socially bonded, that are uh, either they grew more or they're more in the same party, they, they, they tend to associate more, they seem to have this tighter relationships in their uh, call and response. So like this, this temporal gap between their turns seems to be smaller when they're really, uh, um, yeah, when they're more socially bonded. So it seems almost like they, 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 they feel each other better. They are no, uh, they're better able to respond to each other related to the social things. And there's also uh, some studies being done like, okay, what's the role of rank? Do you quicker respond to somebody that's really highly ranked because you want to appease them or not? And there's, there's some mixed evidence here. We don't really know. Um, but we do know is that, um, at least in gorillas, um, that they are aware of these turn-taking things as well. Uh, and the way they did it, it was in a captive uh, study, is that they used, again, playback experiments. So they had this, this, this certain call, turn-taking call structure that they heard in, the, in, in their uh, community. And then they would alter that in some way. They would either have a very long gap or some overlap or uh, their normal way they respond, like with a normal temporal gap as they measured in the, in the population. And what they saw is then when they altered things, when they changed things, the, the, the gorilla in question, the subject would look longer at the, at, at the, uh, at the speaker as well saying like, this, this was wrong. It, it, mm -hmm. it, seemed, it seemed wrong, uh, uh, this turn-taking structure. Like, um, so they are definitely aware of it as well. Uh, they're not just doing it, and we just, but they're not aware. We see that in gorillas, and I think there's a study in chimpanzees, but I'm not sure as well, uh, very similar, where they are aware of like, okay, when something is, is wrong, when there is overlap, when there is not. Um, and also, like, like we're not talking about as if they're only doing turn-taking. There, there are also a lot of overlap. And there's also uh, this idea of uh, a chorus where you actually want overlap, uh, where you want to synchronize as much as well. And, and gyms have this vocalization called a penthood um, that I'm not going to do here. Uh, uh, this is very loud, very long distance call um, that they maybe using to, to localize other parts of their community uh, that are not there, because uh, maybe important to know chimpanzees, they live in these big communities, um, but they're not as one group always together. There's called something called fission fusion dynamics, where like the bigger community would also break down in smaller parties, which can fission further in even smaller parties and then fuse again, and it's very dynamic. So in the uh, community that I studied in Uganda, there's actually two communities. Um, they were like 80 and 120 individuals, whereas at most I saw maybe 50 individuals, mm -hmm. and that's very rare. Usually it's a party of like 12 to 20, 
or sometimes just a mother and the infant. Uh, it's very dynamic. So in the big rainforest, they know their community is around, like they have a certain territory, but they could be anywhere. And sometimes you use this to calls to, they, they seem to use it to see, okay, where is everybody else? Um, but, and then there is this, this call and response, but when they're in the same party, it also can be more of like a display of like, look at with how many we are, especially if they're closer to their edge of the territory, it's more like a display of like, look, we are very many. And in that case, you want to synchronize, you want to sync up, you don't, you want to have as much overlap as well. And also, cause it's not like one single call, it's a very like a certain way to build up. You want to synchronize that as well. And then we also see that more socially bonded individuals are better able to to synchronize their pantoot to get to that end climactic part of the pantoot uh, at the same time better compared to, to individuals who are less associated um, so we're talking a lot about turn taking and avoiding overlap but also when we actually want overlap and want to synchronize they also seems to be a social thing where friends for lack of a better word are better at, at synchronizing uh, but also better at turn taking compared to, to less associated uh, individuals. I think it's the same when people talk to another, because when I know or when I have a good friend, I usually know when he or she is going to finish a sentence and when it's more likely to be my turn to start speaking or to not start speaking. Mm -hmm. And also in singing, when you would sing in a human chorus, you would know when it's your turn to start singing in a group and when it's your turn to not sing in a group. Yeah. So maybe to make it a bit more onto the human again so people yeah. can grasp it a bit more um, easily. It's a bit, maybe a bit like that as well, or would you say it's still different? No, no, I think that's that's very, very similar. Uh, and I think, I think it really relates to the, the expression, very good friends, they finish each other's sentences because you know each other that well. Uh, communication is way simpler, actually, there. Um, But yeah, the amazing part is that even with total strangers, we are able to have a conversation with mm -hmm. somebody we never met, uh, even if they speak another language, uh, we, we would struggle, but like the turn-taking structure would be there. Um, and I think we see that in chimps as well. Uh, um, but that's something yeah, we, we too hard, to, hard to study because we could never just get a chimp, remove it from its uh, place and place it into a cage with another chimp that I've never seen before. That would go horribly wrong and also ethically not done. Mm -hmm. So we're not really able to test that, but we do see that like, yeah, if they're within a community, there are, are, are individuals who are very closely uh, together and just individuals who are in the same community, but they don't interact that often. And we see differences, but we do see that that basic turn-taking structure Uh, at least elements that we test for seems to be there also with less uh, bonded individuals. Yeah, you just mentioned a bit earlier that uh, the group you were uh, focusing on in Uganda is quite was quite quite special during mm -hmm. the recordings because they were quite large as a group. Yeah. Are there any other like do you have any infield experiences you can share or any anecdotes which you enjoy thinking about or which are really so so many. Uh, so uh, maybe, so I went to the Ngogo community in Uganda, in Kibala National Park. Um, for people listening, if it sounds interesting, there has been a Netflix documentary called uh, Chimp Empire. I've actually watched that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's about, I think, about a year ago released. And it was also filmed when I was there, which I think is really cool because when you go to the field, you've got all this experience and you can tell them to your friends, but they will never 
be able to experience what you experienced, but now I actually can show like, oh, these are actually the chimps I looked at as well. Uh, and there's an infant in there that I actually, she's part of my data sets, like she, she's uh, very dear to me, very important to me. And like, I can actually show her uh, to others instead of just like my, my, my video, but actually with a whole story behind it. Um, so the Angogo community is uh, quite special to start with as a first, because uh, uh, a community of chimpanzees generally is between 50 to maybe a hundred individuals. That's like, I think the largest community that we've known before Angogo was about a hundred individuals. Um, but then when they started studying uh, the Angogo community about 30 years ago, they quickly realized there were more here. So when they started studying, it was actually one community that is uh, over 200 individuals uh, uh, big. So it was twice as big as the biggest that we've ever seen before. Um, but about six, seven years ago, uh, they started to become a split in between mm. the communities. Uh, and they, they started to fish in a part in a western part and a central east uh, part, which is, again, it was very unique. Uh, we only other case, we know this happens. We, we know they, they grow, they fish in, they sometimes shoot. But we're actually be able to study that only once, uh, which was um, in Gombe, where Jane Goodall did her research, when they just started to habituate, when they just started to, to be able to collect data on a day, they saw that it was also fishing. But it was just in the beginning, they didn't really know what they're looking at. So this is the first time we're actually able to see, okay, what happens if a huge community splits and what happens at some point also very tragic because you see that chimps who used to be friends who used to hang out together, then suddenly when they see each other, they actually fight and they, they have this uh, big confrontations that can also be lethal when there have been gym skills uh, between those communities. And once spoke to master, there's something you see in that as well in, uh, in Chimp Empire. Uh, so it's a very unique community as well. And because it's so big, um, I was lucky enough that there were also lots and lots of infants. Um, and you can imagine, uh, we don't have trackers on those gyms. We, we, we don't really know where they are uh, in the morning. And, and so in the morning we go out, we know which trees are in fruit. We, we tend to go that way. We know where, they, where we left them yesterday, which way they were moving, at least that party when you're there, but it's, it's a small part of the, of the bigger community. Uh, but sometimes you just have to be lucky and sometimes you have to listen. And there have been days where I've been walking for eight, nine hours and I didn't see a single chimp. Just those days are there as well. But yeah, when you're with chimps, it's, it's very it's very cool. And uh, I'm lucky enough to focus on the infants. So I've got uh, lots and lots of cute infants moments, infants playing with their mother, infants playing with each other. Um, do I know any specific anecdotes? Uh, Maybe a quick question. How yeah. close are you to those individuals and do they react to you? How, how does that look? Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's, that's good to explain. Um, so, so with any, any chimp research being done in the fields, it takes a long time. So first time when you arrive there, you won't see any chimps. They will run away before you even get there. It takes about 10 years for a chimp community to get used enough to researchers to kind of ignore them. And it's called habituation. Um, so I was lucky enough, and Gogo is already almost 30 years old now. So by the time I was there, they were completely habituated to researchers. They, they tend to ignore us. 
uh, still we are wearing uh, uh, masks and we go in quarantine before we go to the field. Uh, so when I arrive there, first I'm eight days in a quarantine camp and then I go to the actual camp in the middle of the jungle because there's a lot of diseases that uh, chimps can get for us as well. And for us might be a harmless flu, for them it can be deadly. Uh, and the biggest example is COVID. I went there during the uh, uh, corona crisis. Um, so, of course, we have to be extremely careful that we don't give COVID to the gyms because we can tell humans to keep one and a half meter distance, to wear a mask. We can't tell chimps to do that. So you can really imagine if one chimps gets something deadly, it can spread through the community very quickly. Um, so even in the field, we would always wear masks um, and we keep a distance of minimal seven meters. We tend to go towards 10 meters. Uh, but sometimes you get a little bit closer. Uh, but generally, when a chimp would move towards you, you move away, you move out of the way, you, you keep your distance. Uh, with only two exceptions is when a, um, a male uh, chimp, sometimes they have this displays, they start running around, they start throwing logs, they start shaking things to, to show off how big they are and to, to get this dominance. And they might also do that towards you. And the last thing we want to know is that the chimps know that we are scared of them, for example. So when a male chimp comes rushing towards you, you actually need to stand your ground. You need to look at your notebook or look up as if you are bored, as if you totally don't care which can be tricky at some points, uh, but they would also always uh, fear off. They would like maybe one or two meters away from you, they would like go to the left or go to the right. Uh, they would, and I have to say, rarely hit you because uh, they would never hit you fully, but like uh, once, and this happened with me, uh, there was this champion coming towards me, uh, it's called Jackson. Uh, and he feared off like a meter before me, but he grabbed the sapling to like just shake it and he hit my backpack with that sapling. Uh, and I, I've heard of other stories where they brushed against the, the research, so they would touch the researcher, but that, that happens rarely. Um, but yeah, then you need to stand your ground. And the other exception is, which I have more, is with juveniles and infants who want to play with you. Um, and if they notice, okay, if I move towards him, then he moves away, then they can see that as a little game. Uh, and we don't want that either, that they really see this as a game because then they would constantly walk towards you, you move away, and then, then you're interacting with the chimp. And generally, you want them to be there and to ignore you. Um, so yeah, you, you keep your distance uh, while still trying to film them. And, and, and you notice, with the, just like with humans, there's different personalities. Some chimps really don't care. Uh, there's this one chimp called Rich Burgle, who usually, he really don't care about humans a lot. So he would walk straight past you. So you would always have to move away from him because he just doesn't care that you're there. Whereas others, they would also walk, always walk around you. They would always make, make a white turn around you, but he doesn't care. And there's been several times where I'm filming a chimp and then he would be behind me and I wouldn't know. And he would just like literally brush past me uh, 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 within like a few centimeters or sometimes. He, and once he even like, like just touched me, but not like, oh, I want to touch him. He's just like, I want to take this path and you're standing in the way. So I'm just going to move, move this way. Uh, which of course is something we try to avoid. Yeah, some, you, you don't have eyes in the back of your head. So sometimes you, you, you don't see it. Um, yeah, so now we, we always try to keep <laughs> keep our distance of uh, of seven meters, but sometimes that just doesn't work, uh, and and the, the chimps decide. And with me following mothers, some mother again different personalities. Some mothers don't care at all. Some mothers can get a bit anxious. Some mothers are very annoying in the morning, but once you follow them for two three hours, they kind of tend to 
give up. They they're like, okay, I know today you're following me, and they 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 get less shy about it and they just do their own business. Whereas other mothers, as soon as they they almost have to play this game where you're like not really following them, but then you are like you are following them, but like the moment they look at you, you look away as if you're oh I'm just here, I'm not following your infant now, I'm just happen to be here. Because as soon as they notice, okay, you're really following me, then they start to run away or then they start to climb up the tree. Uh, and like if a chimp really runs away, you can do what you want. You can follow them for maybe 20, 20 30 minutes, but then you'll, you will eventually lose them. Um, and there is this one mother called Kalas uh, with her son Kano. And she, she was really shy. So she, she was really difficult to follow. So like I tried to get... Uh, I tried to get data of every, uh, of as many infants as possible, uh, once a month. So I really tried to like every month to get like a data, a full day of following one infant so I could track the development over time. Uh, and because you can't decide who you're following, it's just who you happen to find. There's a lot of times where you find three mothers and you have to make a decision, okay, who am I going to follow uh, today? And then you choose mother A, and then in the next three days, you just find mother A, and you don't find mother B and C, where you're like, oh, shit, I follow B and C. Um, uh, but with Kalas, is like she was very tricky to follow, and, and you wouldn't see her very often. She was also quite shy, but sometimes you yeah, you happen to see her, and uh, you would follow her. And if, if, if she was somewhere and you would arrive, she would look at you, and, and at that moment, she would decide if she was going to be nice that day or not. The worst day, like even if she was nice, she was tricky. But you, if you kept your distance, like, in, that, in those cases, I would keep like 15, 20 meters. Whereas with other mothers, I would stay seven meters and they wouldn't care. Uh, but I remember this one day, there was like this big group. They were moving in a certain direction very slowly, and I was following Kalas. Um, and what she would do is, I was on the right in the group, she was on the right group, she would just cross the group to the left side. And because I have to keep my distance of all the chimps, I can't follow her. So I had to go all the way around the group. Uh, walking many more meters until I found her again. I kept my distance, and as soon as she saw me, she went to the right side of the group, and she did that three times until like the group generally rested. And I did find a spot where she didn't care about me being there, but like I knew hundred percent sure she knew like okay, I can run away, but then he will run after me. The only way I can actually get rid of this annoying human is to cross the group where he can't follow me because he has to keep the distance. <laughs> that sounds very smart. Um... At the end of the episode, we always try to put uh, the topic into the context of cognitive science in general. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I would assume that your main focus is uh, somewhat of a linguistic background because you are focusing a lot on communication, but you said that you don't have a scientific background in studying linguistics. Yeah, so uh, yeah. what would you say is the main scientific field or the focus area of your research? Uh, Yeah, like I don't have a linguistic background. I also don't really have a cognitive background. I really come from ecology, from behavior. Uh, but what I think is that, yeah, I'm really focused on behavior. So what I'm looking at is what I'm seeing. Uh, whereas cognition, it tends to be, okay, what happens in the brain? What are the mechanisms behind what makes behavior? Uh, and I feel like sometimes... Um, scientists are are, are are interpreting behavior way more than they could be like there's a, like uh, like I tend to say okay what I see is what there is and and that's what I make sense of and I start actually try to stay away about okay but what's the cognitive mechanism behind it what's happening in the brain so I actually tend to stay away from cognition um, 
but still you can you can have this 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 yeah you can i mean cognition is what produces behavior it, it, it is the process behind it and it's very interesting to to really focus on like okay what is making this uh, behavior happened but also it's just as valuable to just look at the behavior itself and see if that makes sense independent of the cognition like there there is the link to be made but it doesn't have to be made always and i feel like sometimes i feel we always have to also talk about cognition uh in communication a little bit with intentionality which is something i won't get into uh but it's really focused on like okay there has to be an intention behind it, it has to be cognition behind it and i think that there's definitely a field in that but there's also the part of the field where it's just like okay but look just what's happening and does that make sense in general independent of what's happening in the brain behind it mm-hmm. yeah i think that's also <clears throat> also why it's quite tricky to at least for cognitive science students to grasp what uh, the comparative cognition group is working on because mm-hmm. as you've mentioned we are often focusing quite a lot on the um, neuroscientific background which you are not doing yeah or we um, focus on behaviors and try to understand why they behave in a certain way but not from um, the kind of just behavior side but more what are the mechanisms behind yeah. moving them to yeah act in a certain way but as you were explaining your focus I was thinking is it more biology or neurobiology or is it more psychology for you like linguistics yes but psychology or biology I feel like I'm definitely more a biologist than than a psychologist yeah I really come from the animal itself uh, in its environment uh, and then okay what their what, what's their behavior and does that make sense in the environment is in so also a bit of ecology in there as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah um when you would explain or when someone would ask you hey i've heard you've been in a podcast what would be the shortest summary you should could give about this interview about this interview yes it was a very nice interview where i was able to ramble on <laughs> communication in, in, in primates and the evolution of human language and my experience in the field. Um, yeah, I, f- I think about that. Uh, listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for your time and good luck with finishing your dissertation. <laughs> yeah, no, again, thank you for inviting me. It was very interesting. Uh, this is my first podcast and uh, No, I was really happy to be here and the time went way quicker than I was expecting it uh, to be. Thank you. Before we roll the credits, we'd like to inform you about the Coxie Space Day. This is an event happening on the 18th of November 2023. On the Coxie Space Day, you can meet us as the makers of the podcast, but also connect to other fellow cognitive science students and alumni. There will be a lot of different booths, fun workshops and some exciting surprises. The Coxie Space Day will be the perfect spot to get in touch, connect and find orientation in the whole universe of possibilities in cognitive science. You can register on www.coxiespace.de That's C-O-G-S-C-I-S-P-A-C-E dot D-E. We hope to see you there. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. 
Produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne. Produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan-Luca Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.